Hi, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Drunken PM Radio. You're probably listening to this on projectmanagement.com. I would like to thank them once again for sponsoring the podcast. This is going to be one more podcast, probably the last one that I'm going to do for a little while on how to try to get Agile to work in a digital agency. And right now I've got Robert Sfer and Lance Hammond on the interview. Uh, Guys, thank you for taking time out of your day. Thank you for having us. So they're set up in Atlanta, which is part of the global network that is huge. You've got offices all over the planet, according to that map on your website. Yep. We have 15 offices and 1,500 employees um, and across the United States, Europe, South America, and Asia. Okay, so this is really huge compared to most of the digital. Most of the people I talk to from agencies are like fifty people, um, so this is really big. And you guys have teams that are distributed across all these environments, or are they kind of local to each location? Yeah, we have. Uh, we certainly have teams all over the place in every office, and our teams actually collaborate on multiple projects. So it's the projects typically are not just. Uh, located to the office itself, but definitely collaboration across, uh, even across the pond in England, uh, certainly down to Bogota, Medellin. Um, let's see, we're in Asia again. Um, Singapore. Singapore, yes. Yeah, that's the one little dot all the way. <laughs> so, all right. So before we go any further, now that we've kind of like set it up that it's going to be about digital agencies but and, and Agile, but this is a much bigger scale, much bigger scope. Um, Robert, do you want to introduce yourself first? And then Lance, you, go, you can go second. Sure. So, uh, Robert, I've been, um, I'm the director of, uh, engineering here at huge. I've been here almost two years, um, after a stint, in fact, with you at leading agile before that, uh, with ThoughtWorks, um, and before that in various government, um, work and dot coms, I, I came up as a software engineer and shifted over to, um, agile transformation, uh, agile coaching, and now here focusing more on engineering and specifically more around the process that we use in the office to deliver products um, end-to-end. Okay. Thank you. And Lance? Yep. And my name is Lance Hammond, and I'm a program director here at HUGE. I've been here for three years. And before I was at HUGE, I had a long tenure at Razorfish, which is another digital agency um, that's now sapient Razorfish. Um, and I lead a team of project managers who are deployed across various projects in our portfolio. Um, and we work very closely together with Robert and his team to put together staff plans and models that can execute against the work. Cool. All right. Thank you. And so, and Lance and I did a, a, a an event not too long ago for the Scrum Atlanta user group. We did a live interview in front of thousands of people. Uh, at the version one offices, I guess it's not version one anymore, but it used to be version one. <laughs> um, now it's CollabNet. Um, so if you'd like to check that out, you can go to the Scrum Atlanta user group site. Um, I guess I, I want to start out with asking, how long have you guys been working on trying to bring Agile into play? Or how long did that take to go from not having anything that was, you know, from being totally traditional to this this kind of agile approach you have to work, which if, if you look at the website, everything that you talk about under how we work is all basically supporting an agile approach. Lance was here before me, so I think he could speak to that a little bit more. Yeah, so three years ago when I started, you know, our approach at HUGE has always been to iterate. So that philosophy has always been kind of built into our business model. But I think... Right when I started three years ago is when we started to get more formalized around an agile methodology where we were running traditional scrum, doing 
two-week sprints and all the ceremonies that come with traditional scrum, that all started to get ingrained in our day-to-day operations, and more people started to understand that. But then uh, Robert joined about two years ago, and we then, um, with all of his expertise and his ability to come in and train our people, we started to move beyond just traditional scrum and adopting lean uh, methodology and continuous delivery cycles. Okay. So I want to start start slow and try to walk through how some of this stuff happened. So one of the things that I've always found kind of perplexing about the struggle that agencies have with Agile is that back when I was working in, in places like that, um, the whole design approach the iterative approach to that seemed so similar to Agile to me that I always assumed that would be a really easy fit. But most of the places I talk to, it's like design is always the most resistant part. Um, Lance, since you were here for when that stuff happened, is that was that an easy transition for the folks or was that sort of not considered to be an Agile iterative approach? So I think most people saw agile methodology as something that applied to the development teams and QA more than it applied to, say, UX, uh, visual design, content strategy, and you know other disciplines. And what we have been working to do, um, you know, and it's been a progression as we've gotten more mature in in standing up our methodology, is to have everybody approaching their work. Um, in agile methodology and tracking their work through a backlog so that we can get a really good feel for what our velocity is and what our throughput metrics are so that we can predict more accurately what work we're going to be able to complete within a certain time frame so that we can set expectations with the client appropriately. Okay. So it started out more on the development side and then is, I mean, I'm assuming that's Everything began with development, and then you kind of extended it little by little from there. Yeah. So, so when I started, one of the first observations I had was that there were, you know, we were trying to apply Scrum to everything. And one of the things you probably heard about that is difficult for uh, creatives to work in is to say, look, you know, you got to give me an estimate what you can do in the next two weeks. But it's creative work, right? So when I did a little bit of a value flow analysis on how the office worked, it became really obvious that the flow that creative uses is really more around Kanban. It has to be continuous. The information evolves over time. The design evolves over time. Whereas with technology, you could chunk it down because you could break down a user story in, in small pieces sure, sure. and execute on. And then, so the first step was to look at this and say, okay, I understand what's happening. How about we split the process? We start with Scrum for uh, for tech, but let these these folks in creative just do the work the way that they do, following Kanban and at least giving us visibility into the work that they're doing. Because one of the things we didn't have is what were they working on? How long was yeah. it going to, or how long does it usually take? What is the throughput? These are metrics that you can get over time, but to ask them to sit down and do an estimate or give a you know a size point for a design just doesn't work. You have to get these metrics differently. Okay. So that's how it's evolved into something different. So when your design team is approaching work, one of the arguments that I often hear is, you know, from the design side as well, we can't really design, let's say it's a page, uh, until we have all the elements sorted out. And that's something that on the Agile side, I would say, well, you're going to be kind of iterating on that whole thing. Can you just design this tiny little piece? Um, how do your designers approach 
that aspect of the work? Are they getting all the stuff up front and then figuring out how to put it together? Or are they doing little bits at a time? That's a great question because that is definitely um, something that we've experienced pushback from the design teams for is that they need to establish an overall look and feel. They need to establish the design system. There's just certain things that need to, uh, that we need to clarify with the client and get buy-in from the client. So what we've done is created a process where we deliver what we call a vision presentation that contains a lot of the core elements, some maybe some primary user flows, the design system, and then some initial uh, looks and feels for pages and templates that we can then build from. So we're getting, that kind of accomplishes a couple of different goals for us. It allows us to expose that to the client and get their feedback before we start getting into development. Yeah. And it also gives the design team and the UX team a solid foundation to build from when we start so we can use that to apply towards specific features and pages that are going to be developed. And that's even before the foundation phase of the project starts. So we do the vision presentation. We give them an idea of the direction we want to go. So everybody's on the same page. And then we start work. So then you start building wireframes. Then you start ideating over things. But you've got the foundation there. Okay. Um, so that reminds me of something, Lance, that you and I talked about before, which was when you, if I'm if I'm getting this right, when you meet with the clients initially and you go through the vision presentation, you are presenting a variety of of places they could end up. You know, kind of the the, the Cadillac version, you know, the mid mid version and the low end version. Um, showing them all their options and then engaging them in the work and then refining where they're going to end up based on time and cost and everything else. Is that fair to say? Yes. Well, in the, in the vision presentation, we will think about, um, you know, we kind of take the whole mentality of crawl, walk, run and think about what MVP could look like for an initial launch and then break down features and functionality and different levels of fidelity that could that we could launch in the future and then talk about those with the client and prioritize them to find out what their, you know, needs are, you know, short term and then how we can evolve this solution over time. Okay. So that, that is, I guess, an initial The reason I was asking is because it seems like it's an initial pass at having them help to prioritize features and different themes and things that they want to have included in wherever they end up. So it gives you a sense of, well, we can not worry about this. This is something that seems really important to them, et cetera. Yeah, I would say also this is one of the first things we changed when I got here, which is um, if, you, if you think about some of the projects we worked on together, Lance, um, the client wasn't originally involved in understanding, for example, how you estimate things, how you prioritize things. And we really forced the issue. We said, no, they, they need to be exposed to that because they have to own the delivery. They have to own what they're going to get in the end. And they have to make that decision. Everybody has to have skin in the game. When I first started, it was, oh, we got to give that to them. But yeah. as for it, we got to do it. Over time, we changed it to, hey, let's work together. Tell us what is the best thing we need to give you because it's all about delivering the value to the client. You want them to be happy so that their end users get what they need, the most important things they need um, out the door on the first initial MVP and then iterate over that. And we found that the clients really dig working with point and estimation and understanding of velocity or throughput. They get that and they love the control they get over it because it gives them a ton of visibility and predictability. Okay. So one of the, one of the common themes in, I mean, I've talked, I've interviewed a lot of people for this presentation I'm doing next weekend. Um, 
in in the places where agile seems to be working there definitely is a different kind of tone to the relationship with the client where there's this partnership aspect to it, which, I mean, I can see that on, on the website that you guys have, you talk about that. But what you just described, Robert, that is um, kind of pushing it back at them, giving them, making them responsible for, for more than just tell us what you want, but you're going to be part of this process if we do this this way. Is that I mean, was that is that true, and was that a pretty significant change for your clients? So I, I'll jump in here. Um, I, I think the the biggest mistake that we can make, and and we have made this mistake in the past, is assuming that we understand what the client wants and what the client needs, and delivering what we think they need. Okay. It's, instead of um, them being involved in the decision making process, and you know, say that you know. In the past, we would say, okay, we feel like based on our research and our stakeholder interviews, these six features are important. We're going to deliver them to this level of fidelity. And then at the end, they would either resonate and be successful with the client, or they would say, why did you do this instead of this? Yeah. So now that they're involved in the process and we are having them prioritize what they what they would like us to deliver. And then we run a whole feasibility check to see if it's going to be possible for us to deliver it based on time and resources that we have. Um, they are in more, more of a position of control of what they're going to get at the end of the project. And we just find that, that that removes a lot of anxiety on both sides about how the project is going to end. And then it also sets up, you know, a roadmap for the future at the same time. The other thing I'll add that, that it does is, because they're so involved in the process, because they understand it, the moment you have to step in and say, look, if you want to deliver this by this date, because of all the things that we had to pivot on and adjust, we have to reduce the scope. They yeah. understand why the scope has to change. Now they know how to make a decision on which part of the scope do you need to reprioritize, what do you emphasize, and what do you push to the backlog for later, because now they can make that decision and they still get what they want. Okay. So does that mean that you're having to teach the clients how to do, how to work in an agile way or how to work with you in an agile way? All the time. Okay. And that is an accepted cost. I'm assuming that the agency takes on. I mean, you're not charging them for agile transformation. I, I think there's bigger risk in us taking on costs in other ways. If we don't bring them up to our level of understanding and perspective about how the work can be managed. Okay. So um, we do have a client that we are working with in a slightly different model. So most clients will come to us and hand us the work. We work locally, um, sometimes distributed, as we discussed earlier. Uh, with this particular client, we're embedded. And so we work with their development team. Sometimes the whole team moves over here and we work here. Sometimes we work on site. In that particular model, we've actually worked with the client to look at how their office works. Yeah. And we've managed to transform their office and the way they think about um, uh, funding projects or working with projects. We've moved them from uh, funding projects to funding teams. Uh, we've changed their workflow to show them how they could be more effective. We worked with their um, offshore QA teams in order to make them more effective so that we can deliver faster. So we don't stop at just saying, we're going to deliver your product. You really have to truly care about the customer, how they deliver, what their core is, and be really buy into that. And once you do that, you build that partnership that you mentioned, and that allows us to, in fact, influence the customer and their transformation. So in that case, 
they are paying they are paying for agile transformation yeah they're just not putting it in the sow saying you are here to do an agile transformation it is happening just naturally through the delivery of the of the project wow so that it's really interesting to me especially robert knowing your background um that maybe that's a place where folks who come from a transformation kind of consulting background can, you know, move back into the agency world if they choose to and bring that with them. Maybe that can be beneficial for different agencies. Yes, with a caveat. Which is? You can't think in a cookie cutter way. Okay. You can't just lean on one methodology. What you have to do is you have to look at the plethora of methodologies that you've learned over in your career and say to yourself, you know what? I'm going to borrow from these things and I'm going to build a value flow for the organization in a way that is most effective for it. So I think that's very exciting too, because for somebody like coming, if you're somebody who is a career project manager, project manager, somebody who has studied this as a craft and developed expertise or at least skills in a lot of different ways of managing work, different flavors of agile, different traditional approaches, being able to put yourself in a situation where on this gig, we're going to pick all these pieces and make our own menu that is the right way to do things here and keep testing it and changing it as you go. That, that's a pretty creative approach to project management. That's awesome. It's all about delivery. It's not necessarily project management. Project okay. management is defining the project itself. When you think about this, you have to think about it as a holistic delivery, yeah. right? You're delivering a product, but you're also delivering value, delivering a partnership. Um, there are other people in this office like content and, um, you know, client services, strategy. Uh, strategy, right? All these folks are involved in this and they happen to work before the project even executes, yeah. right? All that, you have to encompass all this and understand what the whole structure looks like. That's where your interest has to be. Okay, cool. Thank you. So I, I want to focus on one other aspect of something you said. Another thing that is a common it seems to be very common amongst the places that have been able to get some aspect of agile working is the way that the work is funded. You mentioned that they move from funding projects to funding teams. And I'm curious, you know, for, for the majority of your clients, are they paying for a team or are they paying for this specific thing that you're going to give me? And I want to track hours of work against that thing. Yes. that's a very good version of it depends so that's the million dollar question (laughs) literally sometimes yeah so so again some clients will go with the time and material okay i have a team and we usually tell them look here's a team for the kind of work that you want to get done yeah let's bring the work to the team and if we decide that you want to have higher throughput then we can decide how we do that either we spin up another team if the team is uh, not too big, then we can add more folks to the team to increase the throughput, and that's it. There are cases where people come to us and say, I want you to deliver this, and we sit down and we talk through what that means. There are special SOWs, and Lance is much deeper into those things. Yeah, I mean, most of our clients definitely come to us saying that we want to pay you to build us a thing that will accomplish this. So we always... Uh, you know, we put together our team structure based on what our understanding of the work is and what resources we're going to need. But we have moved away towards like getting too specific in our SOWs about defining features and defining fidelity um, and making it more of a you're going to have this team for this time box period with these general uh, 
goals towards delivery and that we're going to continue to work together in partnership to prioritize the work and define what the initial launch looks like and then define what the roadmap for the future looks like. So we, we've gotten away from signing up for anything that's too specific because we've been burned in the past because as we get deeper into discovery and research, we find that things tend to change and we don't want to be, you know, pigeonholed into a scope that needs to be flexible. So um, that's worked well for us. So when I get this question in the classes that I teach, the way that I explain the statement of work that I've written for Agile Projects has been, you know, we understand current desired scope is X. Based on that understanding, we believe it will take this many people for this amount of time at this rate but we value uh, responding to change over following a plan. So our team will be on site for this amount of time and will work based on prioritization that is set by the customer. Is that resonating with what you just said? Yeah, really what, what it is is, you know, really we're dealing with uncertainty at the start of a project. We yeah. generally know what the goals are and what we're trying to achieve, but it's uncertain to what level each feature, what what level of fidelity is going to be needed um, to satisfy whatever the objective is. So we start every project with a cone of uncertainty. And then as we progress through the project, things become more clear. We establish priorities and we have specific things that we're delivering. Yeah, David, the one thing I would, I would think about it in terms of if you were to think about it in terms of um, epics, features, stories, um, we try to specify epics. We try to say, here are the general areas we are going to work in. Okay. And based on these areas, as we get through the project, we'll decide how much we're going to invest into each epic. Because that's how you can build up the backlog and really control the scope as you go along. Okay. That's great. Um, how or Do you have any tips for, for, for folks from agencies that are trying to talk their clients into this kind of approach? Do you have any suggestions or tips for them in how to approach that conversation? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is be super honest and very transparent. Don't okay. hide over anything. Be very clear about why you want to do this. Okay. You've got to be able to tell them why it's better for them because you're trying to introduce sustainability, predictability, giving them an MVP that they really, really value, uh, you know, address their end user needs. And at the same time, you don't want them to, th to blow through the budget. You don't want them to blow through time because if you do that, then you affect their own credibility with the rest of their leadership. And you also want them to understand what their level of engagement is going to have to be, right? Because they can't just throw it over the wall anymore. That's, that's exactly right. And the other thing is we have to like make sure that they are clear on what we expect of them. So when we have reviews and demos like it's critically important when we're running an agile methodology that the feedback loop doesn't get out of hand and then our team is sitting around with nothing to do so it's you know we have to make sure that we're coordinating across you know the whole team when feedback is coming in so we can tee up what's next for them to work on and keep it keep that cycle going if we get to a point where you know they are like we have to go get more feedback from additional stakeholders that we didn't plan for, then that's something that, I mean, that's going to have an impact on the project and they yeah. need to understand that as well. You know, the, the other thing that I would add is um, we do our project kickoffs and the client is in the project kickoff and we make sure that we discuss how we work in a project click kickoff and set the expectations. One of the things that I've done in the past is in the project kickoff, I'll ask the client, how do you work at the office? If you have a development team, what do they do? Yeah. And 
generally either they'll have a development team and they'll tell you, oh, I think they're scrum, agile, something like that, or they'll tell you, oh, we don't know what we do. We just get to work and work. And so it's important to try to relate how you work to how they work and try to mesh it during that meeting. So they are, so they understand that you're not trying to override what they do. You're trying to collaborate and you're trying to make sure that the communication between the two sides is very clear and is very fluid. Okay. Now, do you have anyone, while you're going through this process of learning to work together, is there anyone who is playing the role of kind of keeping tabs on the customer's reaction to this change to see, you know, are they making it to the reviews? Is that causing them a massive headache? Is this thing stressing them out too much? I mean, in the same way that we would might track happiness at the team level, do you have anybody who's paying attention to those kinds of things on the client side? Yeah, their name is Lance. <laughs> <laughs> so how I mean, do you do that? I mean, the, the real thing is just to stay in contact as much as possible and, you know, just make sure that you carve out time to have check-ins where you can understand what their pain points are and, you know, and try to get out ahead of it if you can. And, you know, if they need more time, if there's like a, a major, one of their most important flows that we're going to be giving them, you know, UX for and designs for, um, make sure that if it's something that's going to require an unusual, you know, level of feedback or, or there's an unusual number of stakeholders that they need to consult with, that we understand that and we build that time into it. Um, so, you know, I think it's just like staying in touch and making sure that we're communicating what what our pain points are, understanding what their pain points are, and constantly mitigating those. You know, with the, with the client that we have that we're embedded with, um, we also have a, a weekly meeting with their leadership and uh, leadership on our side. And so we just have a discussions, and they're very, very transparent. And I will ask things like, are we doing something that is getting in your way? Um, are we behaving in a way that is uncomfortable? Are we uh, introducing new technologies or anything that our team is doing that is making you feel uneasy? And what is that? You've got to be able to ask the direct, clear questions and give them an opportunity to answer it. And they really, truly appreciate that. So this is uh, the thing I'm wondering about right now is I would say that like if we were talking about Scrum, You've got a scrum master that takes care of the team. You've got the product owner that takes care of the backlog and making sure they understand the needs of the client from a product perspective. But this is almost like a scrum master for the client, it sounds like. Or, or I mean, is it a different role or is that played by, I mean, do you, a project manager? Like, what do you call that that role? So we have we have prog program managers that do a lot of that. Um, sometimes I take on the role myself, right? So as a director of engineering, if I have an embedded team and it's a lot of engineering work, you know, it's it's part of my role to step in and say, how are we doing? It really is also a team role. I don't know that we have a person in this office that is really responsible for this. It's a shared role. And we believe in being able to care about the client as a whole. And anybody on the team will come up and say, hey, I've noticed X. We really shouldn't be doing this. How can we talk to the client about it? And typically, okay. either I will or the PM will or someone like Lance will. Sometimes the product manager will. Somebody from client services will. Somebody will, will own that particular task. But it's never really on somebody's shoulder to just shepherd the client all the way through. It really is a team effort. Okay. And, and I'm assuming you're also um, helping the client to understand, look, if this is pissing you off or you find it irritating, we need you to tell us so that we can make adjustments. 
Yeah, and we do that through building the relationship, really, right? So I might have a counterpart in tech that I talk to. Lance will have a counterpart somewhere in marketing or business. Okay. And it depends on who it is. We'll know, we'll know who needs to take care of it. Okay. So do you include the client in the retrospectives? Or I'm assuming you're doing retrospectives. Is that, are you? We are, and we don't include the client in the retrospective. Okay, so that's more of an internal thing. Yeah, um, we want to allow the team to unleash if they need to. Okay. But sometimes things come up in the retrospectives that we do take to the client right. to figure out yeah. how to solve them. Now, would you guys recommend holding a separate kind of retrospective with the client or just kind of keeping those various touch points in, in contact and letting them bubble it back to the team? We, we do check in with the clients. I, I don't know that I would describe it as like a formal retrospective, but we definitely talk about what's working well, what could be better, what are you not getting um, okay. to see more of, things like that. Okay. Um, so I'd like to shift the focus a little bit, if that's okay. I want to talk about the teams. Um, am I correct in assuming that you guys have cross-functional stable teams? So Dave, I'm going to ask what you mean by that, because that is such... Okay, you're right. I should be more clear. Um, so from what you've said already, I'm I'm under the impression that design and UX are kind of working slightly separately, maybe a little bit ahead of the development and QA effort. But beyond design and UX, what I'm wondering is, are the teams that are working on a specific client's product comprised of people from development, QA, content, are they all working together? Yes. And are they kept together? Are they consistent teams where they get through those stages of forming, storming, norming, and get to performing? Most of the time. <laughs> so that's one thing that we have started to uh, experiment with is trying to keep, especially on the development side, I would say more than um, across other disciplines is trying to keep people who are partnered together on teams as we think of them as pods, yeah. uh, try to keep those teams together and deploy them. If one project wraps up, we try to keep that pod together and deploy them on another project. So we don't have to learn how to work together, uh, you know, for the first time as we, uh, build teams. Yeah. The, the reason why I said, I said, when we started, I said it depends. <laughs> well, it's because, or sometimes it's because, um, sometimes you have a resource constraint, so you may not have as many content people that you could keep as part of a team and you need to spread them out across multiple teams. So if you think about it, you've got, you know, when we talk about the way that uh, leading agile might approach it, right? So you've got the delivery team, the, the program team and a portfolio team. Yeah. And so the team are these pods that we've built essentially that's, that keep, um, as much of the team intact so that we can bring the next project to them. They already know how to do that so we can execute easily. But then when you talk about program management, content, um, UX, VD, um, let's see, what what else? Uh, strategy. Strategy, product management. Analytics. The analytics. They all exist at the program level because you really want it to be cross-matrix and helping multiple teams. Because as they help you know, one team, it's not 100% of the time. They move on to another team and help them out. So okay. that's how we're structured. So you haven't totally gotten away from I mean, one of the things that, that I remember and that I still see a lot of agencies doing is you know, everybody's on seven different projects with completely different people all at the same time, and you're constantly jumping back and forth. It sounds like you've gotten away from that at least on the development side, but there maybe are aspects like strategy where somebody might be working with multiple teams on multiple projects. So 
I would say that the way that we structure our teams is that the only people that would be involved in multiple projects would be the leads, like any like a creative director or a UX director would probably be on maybe up to four projects at the most. Okay. Um, but the uh, folks that are actually like doing the work are pretty much only on one project at a time. And how long did it take you to make that shift in the company? Because that's that's a lot of, it seems like a lot of places, there's places that have that and there's places that don't and the places that don't are like, yeah, we, we can't do that. <laughs> it's just not a total non-starter. We don't, we all worked on 13 projects because we've always done it. How, how long does it take to make that switch or did it take you guys? Well, we're kind of fortunate with the size of the organization that we have here, the kind of clients and the kind of work that we attract tend to be large projects that span, you know, multiple years to, you know, redesign a website for, you know, an international brand or something like that. So most of our engagements are long-term and require, you know, months and months of, of work to, to stand up the project. So stability. Yeah. So we, we have stability kind of built in through the nature of the kind of work that we have and the size and scale of it. Okay. Yeah. And and Dave, I'll say that, um, when I started, some of the stuff was still happening, particularly in tech. So we would, you know, I would have, uh, contracts that would say we need, you know, eight hours of a week of a QA person. And I would say, well, I'm not sure what that is. So we needed to stop in order to stop that, I had to be able to show the metrics behind it. So we we really rely on metrics to look at, okay, what are we doing? Where are we blocking? Where where are we trashing around? And how do we remove that you know that um, that excess or that waste? And so because we have that kind of visibility, we, we stopped saying I just need eight hours a week. We say, hey, this looks like a fifty percent job because it's not very big or. Uh, we have four developers, therefore we need a QA or two QA because we know what the throughput typically is when we when we do that. So we're starting to do more and more of that, but typically we're not we're not pushing people on multiple projects. Okay, so you're so you're tracking flow and taking kind of a lean approach to discovering the waste and trying to eliminate it and capturing some kind of metrics to figure out where it's where the waste is popping up. That's right. Yeah, we we look at throughput, we look at cycle time, we look at uh, lead time. Okay. Uh, just as a, as a basis, there's more things we look at. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that you guys both just kind of, that you both just mentioned, which I've heard from other, again, a common theme amongst the agencies that seem to be having this stuff actually work is that stability factor. They've changed the nature of the relationship with the clients. They have longer term engagements, or they are players in the space where they're a trusted known entity and they're they're able to get away with saying, you know what, pay us on a retainer. We'll give you you know this much of whatever, and we'll do whatever you want us to do. Um, is that how critical do you think that is? I mean, if, if I was a small shop that didn't have that yet, should I? Is it better to just wait until I get there before I try to do agile, or do you think there's a way you could do it without that? I don't think the process you use should really preclude anything. I okay. think if you to be an agile company, if you want to work that way, you should do it because you want to, because you think it gives you the benefit and you should be able to express and explain to the client why it is that you work that way. If you're not able to sell it, if you're not able to convince the client that you're not convinced yourself, I think, I think that's what it comes down to. Okay. So you have to know why you want to pursue an agile approach and what kind of benefits you expect to get from it. 
That's right. And why, and not only why you want to pursue an agile approach, which approach are you going to implement? Right. Okay. What are you going to stick to and why do you think it's going to work? And are you ready to pivot when you're ready to pivot? So you really have to understand the core principles. So one of the things that I keep preaching here is that, look, there are a set of core principles to agile, whether it's lean principles or you're talking to principles behind the, uh, the manifesto, you've got to understand those principles. If you're willing to stick to those principles, then stick to them and believe in them. And if you believe in them, then you can bring the client along because the client will see the value, even though they might you might drag them in kicking and screaming to begin with, but really believe in it to do it. But if you don't really believe in those principles, just, just don't do it. Work how you think is best for you. So I don't think I would normally expect in an agency, especially a smaller agency, that they're going to be stocked up with people that have the experience, Robert. That and, and Lance, I don't know if you had this in your background or not, but Robert, I know coming from your background, you're expected to have a lot of depth in a lot of different types of Agile and to know how to put those pieces together to fit different puzzles. Is that something that you think a smaller agency should have on its own? Should they just figure that out? Or are they going to be better off by going out and hiring somebody who's got previous experience in transformation work and putting them on staff and helping them go through that? I'm trying to figure out a way to, to for agencies that are trying to move into Agile to find a way to get there that doesn't involve tons of thrashing and stabbing at Scrum for years before they go, oh, we can't do that. We're going to switch to Kanban. Yeah, no, I understand what you're asking. You know, again, in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if if you're as an agency saying, ah, I have to do agile, you must have recognized there's something beneficial to it. Well, so it's shiny. Some, I'm sorry. It's shiny. Right. Okay. So if it's shiny, <laughs> then you don't have the right reason, right? So okay. if you think it's shiny, then absolutely go get, go get yourself a consultant. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Who can sit down with you and have a conversation? In fact, um, one company we worked together on at, at Leading Agile was it was a uh, Digital agency, in fact, um, and they wanted to switch to Agile, and I think that in the end they did some some of the switch, but not completely because they realized to do a complete switch meant that some of the processes that they were using would break. But they they brought leading Agile in, so there's absolutely no no nothing wrong with that. Um, you you have to understand though that. Once you do that, you've got to be able to commit. So truly understand and truly speak with that particular consultant as to, you know, understand the core of why you might do it and be convinced about it. Then when you do, you go all in and from top to bottom. Otherwise, don't spend the money because it could be quite costly to revert. You'll lose money trying to deliver a project. It's just not worth it. So you're saying change the whole agency. Absolutely. Top, top change, to bottom. Change the agency as a whole. You've got to think differently as a whole. If only part of it thinks. Uh, that way, you're going to suffer because you're going to have um, you're going to have client services that are uh, that are pushing against development. You don't want that. You want to have that partnership. Okay, so that means sales has got to make the change as well. Yep. So sales, that means how they're incentivized has got to change as yeah, well. Sales can't sell it, right? You can't get there. Yes. So that means how they're incentivized. I don't believe we have incentives here. I think we just, you know, we're just straight up folks who work with clients because we're more concerned about the relationship rather than sell, sell, sell. Right. So at the core, some of the metrics like that are a problem. In fact, ThoughtWorks removed incentives for salespeople for that very reason. Okay. So I've got a, a couple more questions. I'll, I'll try to keep them brief, but um, I'm wondering if you could each comment, maybe, maybe Lance, you could start. What is the hardest part about implementing Agile or working with Agile in an agency model? 
Uh, I, I mean, I think it's like having everyone understand how we're going to deliver the work. And like Robert was saying, we go through the kickoffs with the clients to help them understand. We also go through internal kickoffs to make sure that our team is aligned. So I think that's critical. And then, um, and then I think it's like adhering to the process and trusting the ceremonies and letting things happen. Uh, there should be a healthy tension between, you know, what we're doing and what we're capable of delivering. And we should always be questioning that and pushing each other. And I think that's part of the part of the process is to really come in and, and make sure that we're actually delivering something of value and that we're really like pushing to make sure that we're delivering as much as we can within the time box constraints that we have. Okay. Robert? So I think it's getting creative to understand how to iterate over the work that they want to do and how to be able to tune the complexity of the scope they're introducing as they're coming up with ideas. Because look, we lead with, with creative here. Yeah. And so we impress clients with the creative. How do you not stifle that? How do you still enable that and still be able to deliver something? How do you have the conversation and tell the creative group, look, I understand you want to do this. We will get to do this, but you've got to give me something simpler that I can build over time. I think that's been my biggest challenge here. It's So, it's so they've almost got to play kind of kind of dumb it down maybe a little bit. They can't just go total rock star creative if they're going to build something that doesn't have the flexibility. So I would say that it is more a question of where can we as an organization add the most value like like for example if we're building an e-commerce site and we're getting to the checkout flow we may not need to reinvent how a checkout flow works it's probably not the best use of our time and we're not going to add anything by changing up the checkout flow yeah instead we might instead of like trying to do that we might take that time that we would have expanded you know would have spent on the checkout flow and say hey we can deliver this other feature in an innovative way and where innovation is has more value because uh, the checkout flow is you know, something that's standardized and you know we don't need to spend a lot of time there or on the footer or whatever. But then there's other places like when they're actually getting to the point of purchase that are more important and making sure that we deliver the value there where we can actually do something that is innovative. Okay, cool. Um so that was uh, your answer was great because it kind of is a great segue into my last question, um, and and this may or may not have happened. It's some, it's kind of a theory that I have, and I want to check in with you and see if you guys have done this, either internally or just with clients. Um, but one of the things that I'm I'm kind of coming to is this idea that if if an agency is going to try to transform, one like Robert, you said they have to know why. Why do we want to go agile? Or why do we want to adopt these practices? But have, do you ever have conversations about, okay, there's all these different things we could try to tune up. These are the things that we're not willing to put at risk right now. These are the things that we are willing to put at risk right now. Like maybe a certain agency might say, well, uh, stable teams is not is not on the table for us right now. We're not ready to do that yet. But maybe we could try doing a daily stand-up every day. Yeah, so... We went through that 
quite a few times, right? So some things we said, hey, we have to do all these things at the beginning. So yes, we have to have estimation. Yes, we have to have story review and all this stuff. And then we started pairing that back, saying, what do we actually need? Now we're going, I think, into a more mature area where we're saying, you know what? We need to start thinking about how we do new things like inceptions, meaning that at the beginning of a project, how do we spend a week with the client and convert an eight-week process into a one-week process? Okay. How do we push the envelope there? Do we want to try that? And if yes, what is an appropriate opportunity to try that with so that the risk is contained? Okay. And once we try it, we can learn from it and say what worked and what didn't work. Where do we need to pivot so that the next, the next opportunity we have, we can take a slightly bigger risk because we're more informed. So we have that kind of control over it. That's great. Okay. Um, can I ask one more question? I know I said I was going to stop, but can I ask you one more for both of you? Sure. Okay. So I think every single interview that I have done, and there's been about 15 or 16 interviews, every single agency with one exception um, has just kind of tapped out on estimation. (laughs) There was one person that stuck with it, but they ended up at a no estimates approach. Um, the, the whole story point t-shirt sizing thing, they're all just like, nah, it's not working. Um, if you guys are doing that, what, what makes it work for you? And what, is there anything kind of different about your approach to it that makes it work? Different about the kind of approach to what estimation? Yeah, I mean, are you doing story points? Are you sizing that way? Doing relative sizing, or are you sizing in hours? So we've oh got- no, no hours here. Are you kidding me? That's <laughs> what <laughs> so I was going to say. We've gotten away from that. Um, we have also gotten away from getting twelve people in a room to do estimation. We've made it a more lean process mm-hmm. where pretty much just like uh, maybe three key people that need to be involved: product management, maybe the TA, and maybe QA would be involved in in looking at the size of the user story and and doing some estimation using points that, you know, if we determine that it's too large, we'll break it down. Um, but you know, it's kind of a happy medium between points and t-shirt sizing. I yeah. Would say. Yeah. Dave, look, the thing we discovered as we were working through this is that having the whole team in a room doing points is great to understand the stories, but not the whole team is going to work on the story. So we were trying to figure out how do we get more value out of this? So, the TA will do, like like Lance says, the TA will sit down with QA and then, uh, you know, maybe a creative to ask some questions. The, the the point system that, or the points that the TA was putting on the stories was no different than the team was doing. I observed that over a year. And then I said, okay, well, if that's not different, then how do we get the team involved in this? So what we implemented is a um, ticket pre-flight. So essentially like a kickoff for a ticket. When a developer picks up a ticket, because we are working in a Kanban way, we don't know who's going to pick up the ticket. So when a developer picks it up, they bring in the, the, the TA, they bring in QA, they bring in creative, and they say, okay, I picked this up. Here's what I read. Here's what I understand. Do I have everything? Here are the questions that I have. They get it clarified. They document it into, into, the, uh, into the story, and they start working on it. And then when it's done, we do a desk check so that the same people come over. They take a look over the shoulder of the developer, and they say, "Yep, you've done the right thing." Or, "Not, we've noticed these couple of things here that you need to tweak before you send it, submit it for a PR, so we can approve it and then send it over to QA." That's greatly improved our efficiency because the developers can focus on the work that they need to do, as well as only focus on the ticket they need to worry about. But 
in order to understand some of the technical aspects behind it, like what's going on so they don't miss anything, we have a quick uh, tech stand-up that only the technical team meets and talk about the various tickets or something that they're working on that they might have a technical question about. That's how we solved it. Okay, so they're not walking around feeling like I'm being clocked to do so many points in a well, you're using Kanban, so that it's not like they have iterations they have to hit a certain point value in anyway, right? You've taken the, the sting away of them feeling like they're being clocked. That's right. And then the other thing is because I'm using a throughput, right, to understand what you know how fast things are going, because I'm using cycle time then we get to understand what the true numbers are. Then I can better predict what our, de what our delivery speed is going to be. Then I can better predict where we're going to be three or four months from now. We did that, in fact, with one of our bigger clients. And you know, three months ahead, we were telling them, look, you're going to miss by two weeks. And in fact, we missed by two weeks because we were using LeanKit, because we were able to see the metrics in LeanKit that told us these things. Yeah. And we didn't bother the team to ask them, well, how many points is this? And how many points can you commit to? Well, no, I want them to deliver the value. I want them to focus on their work, not on how many points we're going to generate. Okay. So if anybody's listening to this, the, the thing that, that was said at the beginning of this answer that I think is really, really important to keep in mind is he, Robert said he spent, he watched for a year. He watched for a while to see what was what the variance was between points estimated at a team level and points estimated at sort of that small group level. Uh, if you're trying to make adjustments to how you're doing estimation, just making them without testing stuff first is not necessarily going to help. I mean, do you guys agree with that? Yes. Yeah. The the the, the ops the whole the thing for one of the big things for me is I think the inspection and adaption in how you roll this stuff out, how you implement it is really important. And a lot of people just throw half the you know rules or whatever out at the beginning because they don't want to do them testing this stuff out and figuring out this doesn't work here. This doesn't make any sense here. Like you guys, if you got to that point with three people doing the estimates in the beginning, I don't know any coach that wouldn't like have a total conniption fit over the fact that you've taken the estimates away from the team. But if what you found is that that's a more efficient way for your teams to work and they're not feeling that loss of empowerment, then that works and that's great, right? No, the team, the team loves it because the team is involved in in the stories. The team is involved in being able to create the product. This is what they love. They're not losing their mind because they can't say how many points something is, right? So the other thing you have to be willing to do is you have to be able, able to, you have to be willing to take risks and try to pivot to something different. Yes, the industry says the whole team must be in the room. Okay, it says what? It says who? Does that work for everyone? Well, maybe not. Does it work for you? Maybe not. So try it. If it works, then that's awesome. If it doesn't work, then you know. Yeah. Well, this is great. I really appreciate you guys doing this. Um, and it's kind of heading me further down, <laughs> being convinced that there needs to emerge some sort of different flavor of Agile for, for agencies, maybe more rooted in Kanban. I mean, do you, do you both subscribe to the idea that Scrum is not well-suited for digital agencies? Absolutely. It doesn't work. Okay. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I mean, I'm telling you, I've, I tried for a year. I really tried for a year. We had teams, distributed teams that were built in scrum teams across here and Bogota on large projects. It just doesn't work. The minute we pivot to Kanban, it just, it almost unlocks the client that I mentioned earlier that we worked with. We were a scrum team over there and I kept saying, look, let us just try this. We increased their velocity by 30% 
just 30% by changing the project, not changing the size of the team. That okay. is so significant, right? So, I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense. Scrum is not going to work for everything. Scrum is awesome, especially if you're trying to establish a team, you're trying to establish a process, you're trying to teach people how to work together. I think it's great. But in this environment, it doesn't work. You want to use it at the beginning to try to get give the team a cadence? That's great. Well, that, I'm sort of wondering if if what makes the Kanban unlock everything is the fact that you tied yourself to the chair with Scrum in the first place. Maybe that, you know, for getting over the hump of that switch from Waterfall into Agile, maybe, maybe Scrum is sort of like braces that you need to wear for a while. Absolutely. Because, I mean, I think Kanban takes a whole different level of discipline. Don't get me wrong here, right? So there is a level of discipline that Kanban and Lean are going to take that Scrum makes easier. And it's absolutely the right thing to do to go from waterfall to Scrum just to get stabilized, get a taste for it, get organized, get disciplined, and then figure out how you can change, figure out how you can modify it. And chances are you're going to end up in, in Kanban, I think. Okay. Um, and Lance, are you equally lacking in passion on this topic? <laughs> Robert has converted me. <laughs> we, I, I would say that from my perspective, our projects run a lot smoother. Expectations are more clear, and the client has a better understanding of what they're going to get. And our, like he said, the proof is in the pudding. If you can deliver more and more efficiently, then that's a success. Cool. All right. Guys, thank you for doing this. So, if Lance, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? On Twitter at Lance5684. Okay. Um, and they can also find you on LinkedIn as well, correct? I'll put a... Yes. Okay. And Robert? They can find me on Twitter at Robert Spare and, of course, on LinkedIn. Tell them how to spell your name. S is in Sam, F is in Frank, E-I-R. Okay. And I'll make sure I have links to that. Guys, thank you very much. This was a really awesome interview and a... And, uh, a great way. I'm personally appreciative because this is a great way to kind of recap some of the stuff that I'd already and check in on some of the stuff that I'd picked up from a previous interview. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah. for asking me over. Cool. All right. Take care. Thanks. <laughs>